from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, motivational speaker Pete Goss. The best thing about that day was these little kids coming up to the Queen to shake her hand and thanks to sponsors, they were given £5,000 to buy equipment in their schools. And Melanie Tiley from Brain Tumour Research. Spent the first part of my career in the travel industry, which probably in retrospect is why I do what I do now, because I noticed sort of abject poverty alongside luxury. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another podcast edition of In Conversation With. And today I'm delighted to be joined by local sailor and adventurer Pete Goss. Hi, Hi Pete. <laughs> yeah, this is slightly awkward for Pete and I because we're actually friends and I've never had to interview a friend before, but I'm sure we'll struggle through it. I feel oddly naughty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to start off with, for most of the listeners, obviously I know who you are, many people, even if they're not into sailing, will know you through saving Raphael Donnelly in the Southern Ocean in the Vendee Globe and going on to build, I think was the world's largest catamaran, Team Phillips. But you've done so much more than that. You've had a whole string of projects. Do you want to tell us a few? What your favourites? Yeah, well, like I always say, I don't have a career, I have a series of daft ideas. And I never know when the next one will come along. Oddly enough, it tends to be on the train for some reason. And I'll just sort of have this idea that a little fire gets underneath it and it gets fanned by passion. And they're kind of random things. I mean, I've been to the North Pole three times. I've done historical projects, Spirit of Mystery, recreating a project, well, 37-foot fishing boat that in 1854 took seven Cornishmen to Australia, really driven by hardship for the gold rush so quite varied i spent a month on the greenland ice cap practicing with kites and trying to do big distances at quite high speeds 30 miles an hour and that was training for a trip down in the antarctic so what else yeah a kayak around tasmania yeah, as you do <laughs> which was oh god well a lot of them start also at the bottom of a bottle of wine and that one did and really i think one of our greatest strengths is naivety and really had no idea at the time that that's one of the pinnacles of ocean kayaking but I learned to kayak through YouTube I had a world champion (laughs) found I could paddle for a day so I thought well if I can do that we'll go around Tasmania with a very good friend and it was just a case of stitching lots of days together and two months later we'd done this absolutely epic trip Um, what do you describe your job title as then because I say sailor and adventurer but is that what you describe yourself out are you an entrepreneur because you've run several businesses I don't really feel I fit into it any particular box. I mean, I've built houses, I've had businesses, I'm adventuring, I do a lot of teaching, I work with business schools, I write, I just have fun really and just keep saying yes and it really amazes me with what I've got away with. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I just want to live a full and happy life and yeah. if you keep saying yes, that kind of lands on your lap. I mean, you've got to work hard. A lot of people don't realise the work and sacrifice that goes into I mean when you start a business you go through that phase and then you have a business which you nurture and grows but if you have a whole series of projects then effectively it's a very entrepreneurial process so every project is a business you're starting it from scratch you're marketing it you're 
raising the money, in many cases building the boat, doing the publicity. And it can be from a few people to employing hundreds. So mm. it's been an amazing journey. Well, it's funny you should say that. So you talk about each one being like a business and a project, but you also talked about, and I think you'd say this lightheartedly, you're quite naive about it, but you know there are people who'd say you're a risk taker because you've started so many projects or you've done adventurous feats that are in themselves inherently risky. I think, yes, I probably was a bit naive in the early days, but that very quickly gets chipped off. Mm. I mean, I'm fascinated by innovation and technology, and if you choose to work at that difficult cold face, then naivety quickly gets chipped away. There is risk, but I'm definitely not a risk taker. I mean, as I say, an analogy would be if you threw down a challenge to go from the top of a mountain to the bottom on a push bike, then a risk taker would grab the first bike that they could find and throw themselves down that mountain to fate. Whereas we would quietly go away as a team, do a lot of research, get the best bike possible, do a trial run, three quarters, halfway, whatever it might be. And it would only be until we'd gone through that process that we would choose to leave the top of the mountain. On our terms now, we'd know that we should outstrip the evil Knievel launch into the unknown. We'd created new technology for the benefit of others in the future. And one would leave with a sense of confidence because it's never seen, but underneath the project, we'd have woven this safety net whose duty is to preclude the ultimate sacrifice, which is loss of life with a lot of these projects. So we don't take risk, but we embrace risk. Mm. And I think, God, one of the greatest tragedies of life is a fear of failure. I see so many people who have far more talent and skill than I would ever dream of, but a fear of failure inhibits them. But in fact, failure is one of the recipes or ingredients of life. Mm. Without lessons, you'll never grow. I think the key is managing them so that you can learn from them Mm. rather than being destructive. I think it was Muhammad Ali who said, I've never failed, I've either succeeded or I've learned. And I think that's that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? Rather than thinking about failure. And you've had some incredibly exciting projects that you've taken us all on that journey with. Is there a favourite? Do you have a pet project? You look back and go, I love that. That was the best time or well they're so different it's kind of unfair to compare them i mean the british steel challenge was absolutely amazing to take this group of complete novices and train them up and get them to race around the world the wrong way it's never been done before all the experts said it was impossible and of course they proved them wrong but then i bounced from that into a single-handed round the world race and that had been a really long-term 10-year dream and that was just fantastic. It lived Mm. up to all my expectations and more because I had thrown into it, you know, I rescued Raphael, Mm. which is a privilege and it was a real epic. And we managed to finish it. And that was very important to us because we developed a new innovation. And that was a tough race. 16 boats started, only six finished. And ours was the only new boat to cross the finish line. But then I think a real highlight would be, for different reasons, Spirit of Mystery. I did that with my younger brother, my brother-in-law, and Elliot, my youngest son, who was 14. So that was a kind of a family affair. I don't know. Team Phillips, 1.2 million people came through it. Mm. I mean, one of my claims to fame is that I lost the world's biggest catamaran. But that project was so much more than that. So, goodness me, there isn't a favourite, really. They're all very, very special. I guess one of the common threads through all of them is I've always been passionate about education, so we've always used the project as a fulcrum to lever back into society. And so that's something that's given quietly a great deal of satisfaction, and it's been amazing what kids can do. 
Well, you've inspired a lot of people. I know you had the project with Cornwall Playing for Success, getting young people who were perhaps disenfranchised with education into, yeah, into that's right. uh, learning. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Because that was a fascinating project. And I related to that because I didn't like the traditional education system. It wasn't for me. And yet I could see what that project was doing. Well, yeah, I could relate to it too. I mean, I had an odd upbringing. I didn't go to school till I was 14. My father was an agricultural consultant and he moved all over the world in very remote places for roughly two years duration. And my mum taught us. Mm. So I went to school for two years. I left at 16. It gave me a rash. But that was (laughs) really me being a round peg shoved in a square hole. And so I came across this thing called Playing for Success, this education program, which used sport to give disenfranchised kids a focus and something to excite them and also put education into perspective. So it started off in football. So imagine you have a class of kids, some are not doing well, but they have potential. And the teacher says, you know what, Johnny, I've got this program, you have to volunteer for it. But you can go into Manchester United one night a week for, I think it was a couple of months. And they would go into this dedicated classroom and then they would do practical things. So they would measure the football field, work out the area. They'd count the seats and, well, what if we gave a 20% discount here or there? They would write a pretend article for a newspaper. One of the rock stars, and they were rock stars, would come in and give them an evening. And it was absolutely transformational, both in school and at home. And I really related to this, but of course, down here, we don't have Manchester United's. And so what we did is we started Cornwall Playing for Success, which was using outdoor pursuits mainly. And it was hugely successful. We ended up with a number of teachers working on it full time. And little things, you know, I did a race, a 200 round Britain race, which was called Cornwall Playing for Success. And it was all branded up in bright colours and kids came down to name it. They wrote messages in a bottle, recyclable bottle, which I dropped off as we went round and gave them a position. They studied currents and geography and they wrote a letter to mum as if they were going off. And it was just fantastic. But I remember a little boy who on a different programme was taken up on a hill if not dyslexic, certainly wasn't comfortable writing and he was inhibited by that. And we used to just sit and write for him and just say, tell me what you see. Mm. And this little boy lit up like a Christmas tree and the fields are like, you know, a patchwork quilt at home. And it was just fantastic. So we wrote it down for him. He then transcribed it into a computer, printed it off, made it all look very lovely and arty. And when he looked at it, he burst into tears and just said, did that come out of me? His mum burst into tears. And, you know, that suddenly suddenly changed that little boy's life. And, yeah. and I think those are the things that are important, aren't they? Well, absolutely. And you've changed people's lives in different ways. Obviously, the very direct way of saving Raphael Donelli, who otherwise would probably, or most likely, certainly not be with us anymore. But you've also had people contact you from years gone by with the Team Phillips programme, haven't you? Saying, oh, I was inspired by that, or I worked on it, or what have you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Still to come, Melanie Tiley of Brain Tumour Research. Not realising that one of the delicacies is a rather unpleasant egg. So I decided that when I was looking, I would hide said egg in my serviette. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now.
and that was more than about building a catamaran, wasn't it? There was, there's still businesses going that spun out yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a very social project and it wasn't our project we felt that we were custodians of the project on behalf of anybody who wanted to be a part and there were effectively three windows the first was the visitor center in Totnes which was free kind of in keeping with the ethos of the project we had 1.2 million people pass through there we had the education program that was huge for that project Mm. it had now become really quite sophisticated so I mean a lot of the schools in the country wrote a piece of music or music's my favourite. I mean, we did science, mm-hmm. English, the whole lot. But we had three finalists. And when the Queen named the boat, we had the full Royal Marines band marching up and down, playing the music written by the children. And the best thing about that day was these little kids coming up to the Queen to shake her hand. And thanks to sponsors, they were given £5,000 to buy equipment in their schools. So the website was a big thing with that project. 97 million hits. 76% of which were around the world. And mm. I mean, all the cancer wards across America signed up to it because this was something really positive, forever changing. It was a turbulent road. But yeah, I mean, I was on the train the other day and a lady who's the train manager came up quietly with a cup of tea and just said, I want to thank you very much. I was going through a hard time and came into Team Phillips and it inspired me and here I am now. And you just think, oh, that's just worth every drop of sweat and blood that went into that project so i'll ever be proud of it yeah despite the unfortunate ending in that it didn't end how you would have hoped it had ended no it didn't but i'm pretty philosophical about that i mean to me the definition of an adventure is that it has an unknown outcome and you do everything you can to achieve the outcome you want but it doesn't always work out that way but often with reflection, this different journey that you went on actually was a very rich thing. Mm. And yeah, I don't regret that at no. all. Not at all. Any unfinished business with any of the projects that you think, oh, if I could just go back, I'd try that one again, or I'd do that again, or is it always forward? No, it's, I mean, I never repeat anything. Not that you shouldn't, but to me, life is so short that I just like trying new things all the time. I could have made a career of doing the Vendee Globe, you know, every four years, one after the other. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I just think, my goodness, think of all the things that you'd miss. Mm. So it's ever changing. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I've just started building another boat. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell us, tell us, what is it now? It's going to be either hyper, hyper high tech or it'll be super low tech wooden handcrafted. It's super low tech. Well, you know, I'm 60 next year. And I've just had two and a half wonderful years with Tracy. The kids left home. So we decided that we would leave home. We sold the house, built a boat. We had two and a half years of cruising. But changing family circumstances have kind of precluded going into the Pacific. So we sold the boat and we've come back. And cruising has to adapt. One thing is we love cruising. So we're building a 33-foot rugged little thing which can explore the European coast, rivers and waterways. And it's really exciting. I mean, there's really three parts to a project. There's the anticipation, there's the participation, and then the conclusion. And Mm. the first two are just immerse you in this really exciting world. And the final one, well, you've got to get yourself through that. It sometimes has teeth, but I've always found that you should finish a project with the next idea in place such Mm. that you don't walk away looking backwards. Yeah. 
And that was something I was very keen on getting across to the British Steel Challenge crew because, of course, for them, they were going through this cycle for the first time. And I'm lucky enough to have done it so many times that I kind of know what to expect. A lot of elite sports people, people who've tackled big adventures or projects, have gone on to either run successful businesses or advise others to do the same. What do you think that is? Well, I'm not an elite sportsman. I sit here as a fat old Cornishman. <laughs> I don't think anyone who's firstly worked with NASA on things around sport and sleep bands and, and sailed through the Southern Ocean can say they're not an elite sports person. But you also do keep yourself fit and healthy and what have you, don't you? Yeah, well, I keep myself healthy now. I mean, back in the day, being fit was, you know, one of the cornerstones of performance. Mm. And that was bread and butter for me. I'd been in the Royal Marines for nine years. But if you want to succeed at something, then a lot of commitment is required, an open mind, trying to find a competitive edge through innovation and technology. And so the race took me, or racing took me into all sorts of areas. As you say, I worked with NASA on the first ever sleep deprivation program. If I'm single-handed, I'll push my sleep down to four hours every 24. And if your sleep is that limited, you must ensure that you take it when it is of the greatest benefit. So this limited resource that rested across the fleet, we knew we were going to make a competitive advantage. Now, that kind of outlook, approach, perhaps discipline and open-mindedness is something that's common across any success. And so I think sometimes as a sports person, you can come in and help businesses. I mean, I feel I'm a businessman who is very lucky to have a sporting background through which I can articulate these lessons, Mm. perhaps with a little bit more colour and flavour. And I think, I mean, I do do a lot of this. I work with various business schools. I fly all over the world and I find it fascinating because in a role like that, you get parachuted into, I mean, a complete cross-section of companies in size and what they do. And it's charterhouse rules. All the Mm. dirty washing comes on the table and you help them work through it. Mm. And of course, the more you do that, the more you learn the best way to learn is to teach. And so you build up this toolbox, which you can help other people's perhaps improve. Mm. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, you I feel have. I'm rambling a bit. No, Stuart, no, but. you have. And um, well, that's what you've done with me. I mean, you're chair of my company at one stage and we're very grateful for it. I wanted to touch on something about modern times. So with this pandemic has been incredibly difficult for a lot of people, a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation, a lot of business challenge. You spent time in the military. You spent time with solo sailing where you're on your own in tough conditions for a long time. Has that helped you mentally prepare or has it helped you be resilient at this time? And is there any advice you could give to people to take out of that? Yeah, I guess it has. Mental resilience is an interesting thing. And I think one of the first steps in terms of mental resilience is simple acceptance, is this is the new reality. The old world is gone. So forget about it. Just accept it, what we have. And, you know, with acceptance, you can then look forward with a clear eye, which isn't shadowed by echoes of the past, um, reappraise the ground, come up with a vision of what you want to do and then start moving forward. So I would say just sitting down, quietly reflecting, perhaps mourning the past a bit, put it to bed and look forward and start moving in that direction. I think in terms of the solitude, we're quite interesting creatures, humans. We're naturally competitive. And I mean this in a healthy way, even within your family. Obviously, you're not competing with them, but you're using them as a benchmark to gauge 
how you're performing. And if you're on your own, it's surprising how your performance can drop right off and you're completely unaware of it. And there are funny little tales, certainly single-handing, as you watch your urine. It's very easy to become dehydrated. Mm. You don't realise it. That then has a knock-on effect. So you start to be watching your urine, looking at your sleep patterns, you know, and be tough on yourself, but be kind to yourself. So be disciplined. Get up in the morning, make your bed, have a shower, iron your clothes, have a hearty breakfast, and you'll be like a lion. If you let that drift then next thing you know, you'll be still in your pyjamas watching morning television at 11 o'clock and it creeps in. It's an insidious Mm. thing. But I think you also need to be kind to yourself. And actually, this is a tough time and you are right to feel emotional. You are right to have this sense of loss. And don't be overwhelmed by it. Break it down into weekly chunks. You know, and on a Friday, put your bib and tucker on. Even if you're on your own, make a really nice three-course meal and celebrate the end of that week because the end of a week is another step closer to when this will all be a memory and it will be a memory it genuinely will be a memory and i think that's something to hold on to yeah we have as somebody said we've got a hundred percent success rate in survival so far in life haven't we yeah that's we have right. somehow managed to survive <laughs> to this very point i just want to ask you a couple of things before we wrap up one was do you have any heroes i know you're a hero to some people for what you did in the southern ocean or for other achievements you've had but do you have any heroes people you look up to and go Wow, I really, really admire them. don't really like heroes. I mean, that's a pedestal that somebody else shoves you on. I mean, I do. Eric Tabley was a hero, French sailor, mm. fantastic man. He was a great innovator and, you know, he just was always challenging the norms. And I have sort of quiet heroes that people would never know about, people mm. that touch your life. And it's funny, it's only when you get older and reflect back on your life, you start to realise... Some individuals had a massive influence quietly, but you were completely unaware of it at the mm. time. Yeah, you caught me on the hop stew. No. There's loads and loads of No, well, that's of, kind of, of people, how I feel. You know, I, there's people I admire for certain aspects of their character or certain things they've done. But you're right, if you put someone on a pedestal, there's only one way to go because we're all flawed human beings, aren't we? Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and there will be a mistake. What about advice? You know, what was the best bit of advice you've heard? Or you look back on and think, well, I'm glad I heard that and listened to it. Oh, goodness me. Don't take life too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Wash on the outside yeah. and flush with red wine on the inside. Uh, yeah, well, I think we plan <laughs> to do that this evening so there we go Pete it's been a real delight to have you join us thank you so much for that and thanks for being a supporter and fan of the chamber we really appreciate your time no no it's a pleasure you know all those businesses out there society rests on your effort and I take my hat off to you and if I can help anybody just shout thanks Pete and now Chambermaid introducing business owners from across the southwest. Welcome back to the second part of our In Conversation With podcast. This is Chamber Maid, M-A-D-E. I did tell our guests they didn't have to wear a funny uniform, not M-A-I-D. Chamber Maid, where we talk to chamber members about their business or themselves. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Melanie Tiley, who's the Community Development Manager West at Brain Tumor Research. Hello, Melanie. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, you're welcome. Now, the first time I met you, I was having a tour of your amazing facilities, and you'd invited this top international supermodel, and I was pleased to come, but you'd also invited Caprice. Ah, 
Well, now you haven't got the supermodel, you've got me. No, well, much better. Although Caprice was an absolute delight, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, and Caprice is one of our ambassadors and we're delighted to have her support, who herself suffered from a brain tumour. That's right, and she was telling me about it. She was so passionate about it. Lovely lady, completely bonkers, but in a good way. You know, Absolutely. one of those full of energy and enthusiasm. And for some reason, all the photos that came out in the Herald of this supermodel had some weird old chief executive sort of <laughs> leering behind her. I don't know how that happened. I couldn't possibly comment who that was. No, I couldn't. I was amazed to meet all the incredible people up there and you have people from all around the world working mm. there and I asked them all the same question which was what are you doing here in, in mm. Plymouth and they said this is where it's happening mm. this is the centre of brain tumour research do you want to sort of tell us a bit about that? Yeah I'm really delighted to have a centre of excellence research centre in Plymouth based up on the science park and Professor Oliver Hanneman and his team are working tirelessly on the low-grade brain tumours, things like meningioma and schwannoma, which are the most commonly diagnosed. It's an area that's completely underfunded. And I guess if you say the low-grade, we often say the underfunded of the underfunded. So doing a Mm. tremendous job up at Plymouth. Well, what a guy he is. Mm. He's just inspirational, isn't he? Oliver Hanneman. You know, I was just blown away. I was one of these guys you talk to and your jaw hits the floor. Yeah. You know, he was telling me that a lot of cancers are now curable or treatable because of the amount of research that's gone mm. into it. For example, breast cancer, if it's caught early enough, mm. is almost always survivable. Because of the amount of money that's gone into the research and because of the amount of research mm. that's been done because of the samples. But you have a problem with brain tumour research that's the double whammy. You haven't got enough money mm. and not enough samples, which in sometimes is a good thing, means there's mm. not, enough, not a high prevalence of it. But that must be very frustrating because he said, you know, with the right money, Mm. they can solve this. Hugely. And I think the best example I can give at the moment is the advances that have been made, obviously, in the current COVID situation. And it just really proves that investment into discovery science really will help. And I guess one of the challenges with brain tumour research and the funding thereof is about momentum. So with funding, like at the COVID example, leads to progress and progress attracts funding. So it is sort of a funding circle, if you like, and what they call bench to bedside. So the ability to take a study to patient delivery currently is a long, long time. and, And we just need to have a parity of funding with other cancers, as you've mentioned, you know, breast cancer and Mm. prostate cancer is another example. And it's not as uncommon as we think. You know, I know at least two people who sadly passed away with brain cancer. Three now, the more I think about it. And it's a very debilitating way to die, isn't it? It is. It's really awful. It's hugely debilitating. And over 16,000 people every year are diagnosed with a brain tumour, which can be primary or secondary, because unfortunately up to 40% of cancers spread to the brain. And that's a really difficult situation. And Mm. unfortunately, brain tumours aren't always obvious. They're not easy to diagnose. The symptoms can be very subtle. And consequently, sometimes by the time diagnosis happens, life expectancy is very short. And so I was talking to a lady the other day who lost her husband not a million miles from here. And although he actually passed away in January, you know, she said to me that she'd really lost her husband in the October because those last few months were really, really difficult for her and the family because it changes you. It changes you physically, it changes your behaviour and we just need to do more and attract more funding and more research. Absolutely, and we'll do whatever we can to help. You know the Chambers are supportive, well, of all, obviously of all our charity members, but we've done some really interesting work with you. And in fact, one that gave me, I didn't even remember this until you just said that, that some of the biggest joy I've had in the last 12 months was being able to help that young man get to Germany. Absolutely. We'll be pleased to know it wasn't him I was 
was talking about. So yeah, there is a patient not far from here and military, ex-military, he's actually working at the university and during these 12 months we've had really challenging times through COVID and being isolated. You imagine the situation, how much worse that is if you are a brain tumour patient. With very limited treatment options they are forced to travel overseas in many Mm. occasions and as you said we had a real struggle to get the individual to Germany where he was taking part in a trial and it's really thanks to the Chamber family and all of the networks that were able to be opened up, MPs, Chamber, you know, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, that they were actually able to travel and get, most importantly, the right paperwork to get to Germany. And he did have his treatment and Touchwood doing well. Great. And in the height of a pandemic, I just had such joy doing it because, you know, you said, was there anything we could do to help? I emailed a couple of contacts and I was overwhelmed with the response. I knew the Chamber Network was powerful, but boy, did it kick in. Exactly. We had somebody in London calling someone they knew in the Foreign Office saying, you have to sort this out. You have to find this piece of paper. You have to get it stamped. We had the German police contacted by the German Chamber of Commerce to make sure they had the right travel documents. And bless you, you were very kind about what we've done. I loved it. It was great. Yeah. And all I did was send a couple of I know. emails. But isn't that the power of Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's not really my day job. But I think a small charity like Brain Tumor Research, you know, you do get personally involved. It's hard not to. And mm. I just wanted to make it happen. And thanks to you and the contacts thereafter, you know, we made it happen. Yeah. And I don't want to sort of be political because we're an apolitical organisation. But this is an apolitical comment. Wasn't it nice to see two Plymouth MPs both helping? Absolutely. Talking to each other. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> Indeed it was. So I'm going to turn to you a bit. And I understand you had an early career in the travel industry. I did. After my studies, I studied at what's now Cardiff Metropolitan. I studied business studies, travel and tourism. And yeah, spent the first part of my career in the travel industry, which probably in retrospect is why I do what I do now, because I noticed sort of abject poverty alongside luxury. And I guess that sort of social injustice didn't sort of sit quite right, although it was years later before I pursued a charity career. But I had great fun. I had great fun traveling and it really opened my eyes to how lucky we are really here in the UK. Yeah, we are supremely lucky. I had a talk as part of the Plymouth Advanced Motorcyclist Club a couple of nights ago from two guys who'd taken a Honda moped with a home-built sidecar around the world. And they wanted to highlight that sort of juxtaposition of huge wealth next to huge poverty. And some of it was very, very moving. Some of it very funny. They had amazing adventures. And it made me want to set off, perhaps not on a Honda (laughs) moped, but, you know. VW camper van, perhaps? Well, I have got a motorbike and I do plan to do some proper touring one day on it but not a moped with a home-built sidecar i think that was optimistic (laughs) but they managed it if you'd like to feature on a future episode of in conversation with send an email to info at freshairstudios.com now i'm told i have to ask you about a false leg this is not your (laughs) false leg and this isn't an embarrassing story i'm not trying to embarrass you i think but i don't know why i've got to ask you (laughs) So why have I got to ask you about a false leg? So you know when you're sort of having that pre-questions as what sorts of things are you going to... And I thought, what can I tell Stuart that he won't know? What would sort of find him interesting and some of the things that have happened in my job? So when I was working in the travel industry and people say it's very different to what I'm doing now, but not really because you get to know people and families. And I booked a young lady who was going over to Canada to her sister's wedding and she was being a bridesmaid. So it was all very exciting and we were talking, you know, as you do, dresses and makeup and whatever, or perhaps you don't, but uh, dresses and makeup. Well, only at the weekend. (laughs) 
And what I hadn't realised was that she was an amputee. And when I was booking with British Airways and said, do you have any special requests? And she looked at me very straight faced and said, yes, can I please take an extra leg? At which point I continued (laughs) the conversation with British Airways and the lady had heard on the other end and was falling about laughing because it was a question that they'd never had before. And this leg was dressed in her bridesmaid's shoe and stocking, etc., as opposed to her normal prosthetic. So we had great fun deciding, well, would it fit in the overhead cabin? At which point I was asked, what are the dimensions of your inside leg, madam? And consequently, the only way we could actually get the leg was in the captain's closet. And it safely went on the British Airways flight to Toronto and she was able to be bridesmaid at a sister's wedding. So I think that really sticks in my mind as one of those great bookings. Yes, can I take an extra leg? Yes, (laughs) how bizarre. So you've travelled around a bit. Hong Kong, Nigeria are here, Gibraltar and Spain. And sorry, I'm going to do it to you again. Another story about eggs. You love eggs, don't you? No. So I'm a farmer's daughter, born and bred. And so you kind of think I should like all of those things and really, really do not like eggs. Never have. And my mum, who's not with me anymore, but always tells me the story. She tried and tried, but never... So I was in Hong Kong, a very sort of prestigious restaurant. I was working in education at the time, in fundraising education. So, you know, quite well-off individuals in Hong Kong, and they took us to the Hong Kong Club where a Chinese banquet was served. And I thought, I can do this. It's chicken, it's whatever. Not realising that one of the delicacies is a rather unpleasant egg. So I decided that when I was looking, I would hide said egg in my serviette (laughs) and luckily got away with it, at which point the waitress rushed over and thought that I'd enjoyed it so much, she gave me another. Ah, yes, Uh, Japan and China, they do this, don't they? (laughs) Apparently over there, it's polite to leave a little bit of food. It says, you've provided me so much, I can't eat any more. Whereas over here, we feel we've got to clear the plate. Exactly. If you clear the plate there, you're saying you haven't given me No, enough. it would have probably been helpful to have known that in advance. Yeah, sorry. You should have asked me for <laughs> In which case, I'd have cut it all up and hid it under the lettuce, I think, would have been a better option. Oh, dear. Yes. I mean, I'm lucky I'll eat anything, absolutely anything. But my ex-wife, the first meal I ever cooked her was a seafood pie, and she was allergic to seafood and spent the night throwing up. Perhaps that's why she's your ex-wife. Uh, well, <laughs> if I'd known, I'd have fed it more often. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a completely different story. Now, I hear that you're a rugby fan. I am. I'm a big rugby fan and shouldn't really say that down here because obviously I'm a Bristol Bears girl by nature of where I live and I cover the West Country. So you're living in Bristol now? Yes. Ah, yes. so I sort of forgive you for not yes. um, supporting extra Chiefs. But yes. yeah, go on. But yeah, I've always followed it, mainly due to my husband who played rugby for a lot of his life, now doing uh, triathlon and more silly things. But yes, I had the privilege with working with Lewis Moody in a former life. Mm. But I'm a big Johnny Wilkinson fan. And the very first time I went to Twickenham, much to my husband's disgrace, I was sitting in the stands, you know, overwhelmed by... I'm here, that little girl moment, at which point the England team came on and I found myself rising from my seat on autopilot, screaming, Johnny, at the top of my voice, at which point the crowd sort of said, can you please sit down, (laughs) Johnny? (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I'm so glad you brought the name up because Paul Philpott, who's Fresh Air Studios, has got some great connections (gasps) and um, he has managed to track Johnny down. (laughs) And um, can you bring him out now, Paul? Is he here? 
No, he isn't. Oh, oh sorry. Shame on you. Sorry. Shame I was going to get Johnny Wilkinson here. If I'd known oh. in time, I would have done See, I was getting a hot flush then. Yeah. I was, you know, all unnecessary. I actually got a story about this. I went to, I can't remember the name of the place. It's the hotel where the England team stay when they have a home match mm. and they train there and everything. It's a very nice hotel. And it was my brother's 50th and he decided to treat us by taking us to this hotel. And eight of us had this private dining experience in the kitchen with yeah. uh, you know different courses and different wines with each one. And and it was all very lovely. But as we left, one of the ladies who'd had quite a few drink, I must say, grabbed this guy in a suit and said, that last wine was wonderful. You've got to find out what it was. And he said, well, all right then. So he wandered off and we went to the bar, thought no more of it. And 20 minutes later, he turns up and says, um, I found out, madam, what that wine is. And she's wondering why we're all staring at him. It was Dylan Hartley. He was the England <laughs> captain. And she'd sent Dylan Hartley off to find out what wine we'd just had with our last course. And he doesn't look much like a waiter either, does Dylan Hartley? He doesn't. He was incredibly patient and kind, oh. actually, because I was trying to, in my slightly inebriated state, take photographs of him and the guys. I couldn't get the flash to work. And I've got about 300 dim <laughs> photos of him pulling a face that says, just get on with yeah. it. But they were a lovely bunch. And, you know, they were all really kind. Mm. And it was funny. In the morning, they all came down to breakfast. And you've got these huge, big, yeah. burly guys with beards and yeah. muscles. And they're carrying babies in the palm of their yeah. hand, you know. And they're just family guys. And they're all cooing over each other's babies. And you think, isn't it funny that you've got these big guys who just try to rip each other to shreds on a Absolutely. field? Absolutely. And they're really nice, caring guys. They are. There's a huge camaraderie in rugby. I mean, certainly, again, if I can be apolitical. Yeah, go on. Maybe different to football, you know, in terms of rugby fans. There's a very good-natured banter, I think, that yeah, I've experienced. Th- there is. And I really enjoy that i have to say i was twice invited to Plymouth argyle Mm. as a corporate guest and football was not my biggest sort of thing i wasn't really into it at Mm. all i have to say seeing it live is very different and you do appreciate the talent yeah and we had panucci kamara come to the corporate bit afterwards argyle sadly had lost Mm. and we asked the interview the players panucci was asked by the interview you know what went wrong in the match and he put his head in his hands and he was shaking his head. And we all started giggling because we thought he's laughing about how bad it was. Mm. And then it suddenly went quiet because everyone realised he was crying. Oh, no. He was so passionate about yeah. it. He was so upset. And all he could manage to get out was, next time I'll go forward and I'll score the goals. Oh. And sure enough, the next match I watched and he did. Yeah. He just went for it. Yeah. And one of the guys there, James Greenacre, the commercial director, was telling me that People, you know, say footballers, oh, they're all prima donnas and they're all this and that. He said, you wouldn't believe how hard they work Mm. and how much they really are passionate about what they do. But you're right. You can't help but look at the footballer rolling around on the floor with his sprained little toe next to the rugby player who's got an arm hanging off and still wants to play, you know. (laughs) I think that often comes with sort of grassroots sport, though. I think the lower levels, absolutely passion and pride. But, you know, as you get further up the chain, when sponsorship deals and things like that start to muddy the waters, maybe they should send some of that money brain tumor research away. That would be it good way to balance the books well that's a good way to do a final plug for you yes <laughs> you can tell that you've been a fundraiser at heart and i think you're honorary secretary of the institute of fundraising for the last 12 years yes i've been in the institute of fundraising for 12 years so i was secretary for nine years and still part of the committee but i think really really important that fundraising is seen as a professional career mm. last year we became the chartered institute of fundraising so that was a huge success and you know a privilege really and we really focus on supporting fundraisers across the Southwest because there are many, many charities and people doing good works. And it means that we can be open and honest about the work that we do and make sure we share with that knowledge with others. And yeah, and have a bit of fun at the same time. Yeah, and good fundraisers are worth their weight in gold, aren't they? I mean, I remember, so I was lucky enough to be involved with St Luke's Hospice for 10 mm. years. And it was said back then, and it may now be true, that some of the best fundraising directors 
will end up earning more than the chief executives because there's such demand. It's so hard to find people who can mm. keep things creative and interesting and fun, and mm. especially in these difficult times to get people to part with their money. Well, absolutely. And I think it's about adapting to the sort of current situation. And this time last year, I mean, who would have thought that a year on we'd have been sort of just coming out of lockdown? But Braintree Research was hit really badly. Our financial year runs from the 1st of July to the 30th of June, which is rather unusual. It's not a fiscal year or calendar year. Mm. So the last quarter of last year was when most of our income comes in. And of course, that was wiped out overnight. Mm. So our research really was at risk. But we were able to be agile and fleet of foot and bring in quite a few digital events, such as we did an event this February, 10,000 Steps in February, which I took part in. And it was really a groundswell of support. And I think, what do they call it? A perfect storm, maybe, where people were in lockdown, needed Mm. something to do but wanted to do it for a passionate cause. And really that has helped us out. And so going forward, it definitely will be a blended fundraising sort of landscape whereby we continue with the face-to-face opportunities where we can, but we engage a lot more in digital fundraising as well and virtual events. I think of all of us are going down that route. You know, the Chamber, we're going to be hybrid going forward. So mm. if you can come to the event or you want to, great. If you mm. can't, we'll be streaming it and mm. giving you all that sort of information and entertainment and value package digitally yeah and i think that's the way for a lot of things yeah. i'm so glad that brain tumor research has come through this well done and genuinely pass on to your whole team how fantastic they are and what they're doing it means so much to so many people thank you so much for joining me and thank um, you good luck melanie tiley thank you Stuart. in conversation with is produced by fresh air studios full audio production services for podcasts live links and corporate communications visit freshairstudios.com Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.